2: Greetings, everyone. This is uh, Benjamin Jacobs, from, and today we're going to be talking about Bishop Princes from the early Middle Ages. We're going to be sort of doing a collaboration episode to cover a topic that was a little tangential to the mainstream of both of our
3: podcasts, but which we both really wanted to cover because it's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, thanks for joining me and putting this together with me, Ben. I think this is going to be a great episode. Yeah, I've already had a lot of fun researching this. So, yeah, it's great. I mean, anytime you can research uh, church people bashing in people's skulls with maces, that, that exactly. can only lead to fun.
2: I think. Uh, I think honestly, you know, our podcast—neither of our podcasts would exist if there weren't stories about church people behaving badly. And
3: so, this is this is bread and butter for us. Absolutely. And uh, in doing our research today, we really felt that the best way to start off is we'll talk a little bit about what a bishop is. I've talked about this a bit in my in my own show, but I th- think it's a good thing to start off on the same foot and then show how the bishops evolved and then maybe use a couple of case studies of individual princely political bishops. One thing that we're probably going to skirt around a little bit today is the pope as such because the popes as political bishops is going to be a huge part of both of our podcasts and that could be several hours of us talking here today and we'll, i think that uh, we'll probably definitely have to do a collaboration or two on that going down the line i think just you know we can just say for now that bishop the popes
2: were definitely influenced by the you know, socio-political things that were influencing the bishops that we're going to be talking about, but they're definitely also a special case. So I sort of think about it as like, you know, you can talk about things for New York City, but New York City is always going to just be New York City. Well, the popes are always just going to be the popes.
3: Yeah. And they're what they actually ruled politically versus like an actual actuality versus where their zone of influence is in religious and secular affairs are two totally different things and they're two totally different things time-wise what a pope was in 500s a very different pope than 1500 and that um you know to talk about that in any generalities is probably close to meaningless really and really what it comes down to to start off with is what is a bishop? Bishops are what it boils down to is a leader of a Christian community, and they're the ultimate authority in their region of control. There's many caveats here, but that's a very broad definition. In Western Europe, over the course of centuries, the Pope of Rome would assume universal ecclesiastical control of bishoprics or the over religious affairs, but individual bishops still held incredible power in their own regions. The very first bishop was Jesus' brother James, and he was the bishop of Jerusalem. The bishop developed as a mashup of various different job titles. A bishop was a theological person in that he carried out or carries out the sacrificial functions of a Second Temple Jewish priest, but bishops also took on teaching and pastoral roles that were being assumed by the rabbis bishops also took on unique roles of financial matters and as custodians of their communities in a specific geographical location as the, as time progressed they gathered more secular responsibilities bishops geographic region of responsibility is a very important part of the deal especially for us today according to ecclesiastical canons a type of law that went back all the way to the 300s AD and even earlier to like councils like councils of Nicaea etc made it very clear that one bishop was the bishop of their area and that they could not interfere with the bishops affairs in other areas That sounds sort of medieval, right? To me, at least. And so where did prince bishops come from then? The bishop as a civil leader started to develop after the fall of the Roman Empire, and really even before that. As the civil government began to fail, somebody had to step in to provide stability and make sure that the trains ran on time, so to speak. Meaning that someone had to be there to step in to provide the stability that, um, such as defense and just basic care that makes a civilization work. You know, take out the garbage, take out, um, make sure that there's some sort of internal security as well. But they also started to take on diplomacy with the barbarians that were banging on the gates and. Even after various tribes took over, someone needed to look out after the needs of the local Roman population and be an intermediary with the new leaders. This, and this role started to evolve, especially after a lot of those Germanic and Slavic and etc. people became Christians and became Orthodox Catholic Christians. Bishops were really in strategic role to take over all of those different ideas. And they because they already were starting to get these powers assigned to them, it was just natural that they would be in a perfect place to take on civil authority. Prince bishops developed differently in many parts of Europe and at different times, but that's really going to be what our theme is today. Why in certain areas... Why were there so many prince-bishops, and why did they take on a different character in each of those geographic regions? So
2: I guess the, the place to go from there is, you know, what is a bishop-prince for the purposes of today's show? So at a basic level, we're talking about bishops that owned large territories in their own right and acted as civil as well as spiritual authorities in those territories. What this meant on the ground kind of changed based on the time period, Um, and we should say that in modern times there are some examples of this still kind of hanging around. Um, The church does own real estate, and the real estate is managed at different levels by the Catholic hierarchy, Um, but there's only a few places where the church acts as a secular authority, most notably Vatican City, and then also uh, for my podcast the Principality of Andorra has a bishop as a co-prince which is fun <laughs> it's
3: so strange yeah
2: <laughs> did you listen to
3: my episode on it? oh yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> I, I love i've been obsessed with Andorra since like middle school <laughs> it's i mean it's one of those places the more you learn about about it, it the more strange it is yeah it like never quite makes makes sense no <laughs> really doesn't
2: I think even to the people who live there, they kind of don't
3: understand <laughs>
2: how they happened.
3: And it really, it's not much more than maybe the size of a county in in the U.S., like a small county.
2: If that, you, I mean, um, the, the capital city, I, basically, you know, from a population standpoint, the size of a neighborhood in
3: Providence. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't even realize it was that small. <laughs> It's so small. Um, I mean, they're they're halfway up the side of a mountain. <laughs> yeah.
2: Anyway, um, if we go back a little bit earlier to like the early modern period and the the late Middle Age period, um, bishops in the Holy Roman Empire controlled huge swaths of territory, uh, and to a certain extent they did in other political entities within Europe. Um, and they're gonna we're gonna touch on this a little bit towards the end of the show uh, because it definitely evolved out of the situation in the early Middle Ages. But the early Middle Ages are really what we're going to be talking about today. Um, you had bishops that were rulers of city-states, controllers of countries, um, basically dudes who wore bishop frocks over chain mail and fought the enemies of Christ. And uh, enemies of
3: everyone else, too.
2: So, and that, I think, gets to why we really care about bishop princes. They're interesting because they defy everything we expect about a bishop in the modern world. We sort of have this image of a, a calm, otherworldly holy man who's tending to his flock. Uh But these bishops were wo- worldly and violent, wrapped up in politics, acting definitely in their own self-interest. uh And often they were illiterate and not especially well-versed in scripture.
3: Yeah, I think a really shocking example of that is one we'll talk about in a little while uh, in the show, but there's um, the Bishop of Durham in in northern England. Uh, All through, for hundreds of years, the Bishop of Durham was, like you said, a knight, a big chainmail wearing knight, and now if you go to the website and they have biographies of the various bishops there's the current bishop who's a mild-mannered looking guy <laughs> he has like three PhDs a very different sort than than a just not too long, you know, a couple of hundred years ago
2: I mean, it sounds like he was a border lord back in the day, doing all the, the raiding with the reavers and <laughs> that That was
3: pretty much his whole job (laughs) that was his (laughs) specific job was to fight the Scots sometimes go attack them directly sometimes defend against them Um, so that
2: leads to the question of sort of why are the Bishop Princes from the early Middle Ages so different from what we would expect and Uh, you know there's a bunch of different ways to answer that but basically where did the bishop princes come from um in my studies and various researches there's been a couple broad narratives that i've seen the uh that maybe we can go through uh steve the first one uh just to get it out of the way basically is that they were that bishops are inherently violent and somehow catholicism or christianity is an inherently violent religion um
3: I don't think that's a very satisfying answer. No, I, said, I especially, yeah, we were talking about that. It's such a wide swath of geography and culture and language. It's too hard to just say that, okay, boom, it's inherently violent, and now we can close the book and go home.
2: Particularly since, I mean, at some periods in the Middle Ages, um, don't have the quote quite in front of me right now, but, you know, the Catholic doctrine... Even in the West, was very strongly against killing people that you could convert. Yeah,
3: and um, things like Augustine's *Just War* uh, right. policy or um, theology—that's always in the background too. That the, you have to have at least some tenuous re- reason to go killing someone. And the Bible is pretty yeah. clear: yeah. "Thou shalt not kill." <laughs> one would think. And there there is that underlying idea that you should be against killing to some degree. That there is, right. you know, that's, that's in there somewhere.
2: And, you know, I think uh, just to wrap this point up, you know, lots of religious folks get by every day without killing
3: anyone, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even back then, there was monks who lived in their communities and never left them and probably didn't kill anyone yeah chances are they didn't but you know that was a pretty you know that this is these princely bishops are very specific
2: they're outliers mm-hmm. okay so then the the next big one we have I, I think this is sort of a there's an element of truth to this but maybe it's overly really simplistic um just that the the prince bishops were just responding to circumstances. There's barbarians at the gates, and you know they have to tend to their flock
3: one way or the other. And so the the way they have to do it is to put on the chainmail and get out the sword. Yeah, and like you said, that's a, that's probably just as um hard to take as the other. The opposite is, you know, that not everyone did that the exact same way. Right. Uh one thing that we
2: do have is a, a nice example, I guess, uh the bishop of oh, I'm gonna mess up this pronunciation. Bishop of Bishop Anciges of Troy. Troyes? I really ought to be able to pronounce French better. <laughs> Troyes? Troyes. Let's go with that. Bishop Ansiges of Troyes. Um was somewhat famous for leading the people of the Champagne region in a, a military coalition against the Vikings. But then, you know, a few years before that, Troyes had been sacked by the Bishop of Auxerre, and then um, an- Anseges himself would end up having a running conflict with the Dukes of Troyes to the point that he got expelled and then came back with an army and besieged the Dukes in the city. So th- there's... a uh, a lot more going on than just the um, sort of
3: bishop as militia leader kind of thing. And there's a couple of examples from right around the uh, late 400s, mid 400s, where there would be a group, a uh, tribal barbarian style group at the gates and the bishop would be the take on a diplomatic role. Right and because nobody else was there to do it the famous one is the probably the most famous one is pope leo meeting with attila the han right and who knows what happened but it was pretty clear that there was no roman general or anybody else to stand up to attila at that point
2: i i mean without any research in front of me from what i recall th- he delayed them long enough that they all got malaria
3: and died <laughs> Whether that was planned or yeah. not, but it's it is it still says that there wasn't somebody from the civil authorities to do that. Right. right. The malaria thing is kind of a
2: running theme in my show at this point. But <laughs> I think it's gonna be going for another uh, couple dozen episodes too. But
3: <laughs> that's a lot of fun.
2: So that example of Pope Leo gets back to something you talked about a little bit in the intro which is that just the sort of the socioeconomic circumstances of the collapse of the Western Roman Empire thrust the bishops into this position where they were they were the government <laughs> the general circumstances of the political situation that's sort of my favorite hypothesis of how this the bishop princes developed um and maybe if you'd like, you could talk a little bit about uh, how that how that situation
3: developed. Yeah, I think, like you said, um, why not Bob the blacksmith, <laughs> or why not somebody else doing this? And there was some in some areas the there was the magnates who were the rich landowners, and the uh, Germanic groups who came in. They might co-opt those people, right? because you're really dealing with the classic situation in all of this of a small group of warriors and warlords coming over and taking over a much v- vaster population right these people who really they were orthodox catholic christians they still felt they were romans i i wish i could um pull up you know the, there's people they have things where people writing a hundred years after the fall of the Roman Empire in the four seventies were saying that they're Romans. Yeah. There's that's what they felt they were. They spoke from you know, northern France to North Africa they were speaking a version of Latin. There's my favorite
2: example of um in the the early Merovingian period, the the people of a couple of cities in Gaul uh had signed up Uh, had decided that they were going to be loyal to the Frankish kingdom and as part of that they all agreed to send out their legions to participate in the Frankish military and so you you sort of have this image of uh, all these Gaulish Romano-Gaulish legionaries marching out of the cities and then participating in this Frankish military with the the kite shields and
3: (laughs) yeah it's um it's something that the Germanic uh leaders had to deal with, yeah in northern France and places like that. it was a little easier, and they um like the Franks were able to and in- take over more thoroughly, and that's where you see that north south divide, but as you got closer to the Mediterranean, that's where the culture was starting to change like um j- just in uh Sharon Iau's Cathar podcast you see that it was just such a drastic political and cultural difference between the north and the south
2: i think a lot of that has to do with how firmly entrenched the roman uh, concept of urbanism was in the area and how well that survived the devastations of the 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 barbarian invasions and the plagues and and everything Um, and this has a lot to do with the prince bishop thing actually because the, the Roman senatorial magnates tended to move out into the countryside, but in places where the urban culture remained strong, they stayed in the city, and how the sort of Germanic groups moved into an area and how they behaved after they took over had a lot to do with what would happen subsequently. And in many places where urban culture was still really strong, like in Italy and in southern France, uh, they ended up settling down in the cities and merged into the Roman population to a certain extent. Whereas in places like northern France, where everything was still very rural, uh, or things became very rural, uh, the magnates stayed out in the countryside, and so did the German land new uh, ruling class. And that created a lot of cultural differences
3: and i'm just shooting from the hip here but from what i've read it's i don't know if this was planned or something that they the germanic leaders felt, saw and that's why they made certain decisions but any place where the germanic overlords came down hard that's really where the places broke down the fastest like in north africa yeah uh you know they came down hard on the bishops they came down hard on the uh, but that was the Visigoths, I believe wherever you know that's that's a place where when they you know they tried to get rid of Catholic and Catholic Christianity and impose their own form of Christianity, that's where things uh you know they were a economic basket case where places where they just kind of slid in and let things pretty much run the way they were. That's where things stabilized reasonably quickly, at least.
2: There's definitely, I'd say there's a continuum between North Africa, where they they exercised some heavy repression, and sort of northern France, where they just did everything humanly possible to uh, accommodate themselves to the Roman population. Mm -hmm. With the result that, you know, it was the, the Frankish Empire that, took over most of Europe and the hugest chunk of the old Roman Empire only lasted a few generations, but that was probably the most successful of the barbarian kingdoms.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you look at at England, where Christianity was pretty much wiped out, and the conventional theory is that Romano-British culture was pretty much wiped out, or at least pushed so far to the margins where it didn't really matter anymore, it really took england several centuries to get back to where it was but then you
2: know that's also sort of a, a nice counter example because the anglo-saxon kingdoms were pretty stable's the wrong word
3: but yeah well ensconced uh, yeah. yeah where they um they had the chance to incubate a new culture where the visigoths ran afoul of the Byzantines slash Eastern Romans, and then ultimately Islam, you know, they lived in a little trickier neighborhood and didn't get the chance to have things work out. Yeah,
2: It it should be said that uh modern scholarship on how the Anglo-Saxons related to the conquered Britons is, uh, it's kind of up in the air. Um, yeah, what it actually was. It, it the, the old, uh, genocide, hypothesis has been pretty thoroughly disproven but what is going to replace it hasn't yet been totally settled
3: yeah there's definitely a lot of cool ones yeah. but uh, you know that's way beyond my uh, knowledge yeah me too honestly a guy that's come up a lot and that um, you would certainly seem to enjoy to talk <laughs> about is Bishop Landolph of Capua yes yes
2: I unfortunately didn't have the space for him in my in wittenberg to westphalia but um i I really really wanted to talk about him uh (laughs) this is a continual problem for me because uh the early middle ages in italy are just really fascinating but so to give a little bit of background for those who aren't wittenberg to westphalia listeners um bishop landolf was the leader of a city called capua in southern italy um Listeners of the history of Rome will remember that Capua was the, like, second city of the Italian peninsula. It was just number two to Rome uh, early on, and it remained an extremely wealthy city throughout the Roman Empire. Um, it's located uh, at the north end of the Vesuvian plain, right by Mount Vesuvius, the volcano, uh, and it is right on the mouth of a pass that goes into the interior of the peninsula. Like the rest of Italy, it was kind of hit hard by the fall of the empire, uh, and it was eventually conquered by the Lombard Duchy of Benevento, uh, probably under Duke Sicard, who ruled from 832 to 839. Sicard also conquered the coastal cities of Salerno and Amalfi, and Amalfi's wealthy merchants were critical in engineering Sicard's assassination, which led to the breakup of the Duchy of Benevento. Uh, Everyone in southern italy started hiring saracen mercenaries and things got really interesting to the tune that capua ended up getting burned
3: to the ground and the population moved the city to a more defensible location i find the um lombards to be so fascinating they're like the johnny come lately's (laughs) to the invasion game you know they're really like at least a couple of hundred years after the main game yeah
2: and it's so there's there's such a great what if story um they're probably, you know, discarding the Anglo-Saxons, they're probably the second most successful barbarian invasion group, or I should say, uh, the second most successful Germanic invasion group uh, right after the Franks. Uh, they blended in pretty well with the, the Italian uh, society, and it's just, if the Franks hadn't come over the Alps and bashed their heads in, it's really
3: interesting to see what would have happened. Uh, in Italy and they certainly left their mark so much of Italian uh, vocabularies filled with Germanic words much more so than a lot of the other languages I think much more than people realize Yeah. and then so there was Landolf but there was a bunch of other Land um, characters so after
2: Capua got burned to the ground and the Civil War started and everything uh, Capua ended up in the hands of Landolf who had four sons. Uh, Lando was the heir apparent. Pando was Lando's military leader. L- Ulf, uh got his own fief from Dad, and Landolf was a young guy in his 20s in the Ducal Guards, uh, in, a, in the military. Uh, so when Landolf, when Dad died, uh, Lando inherited, uh, and shortly thereafter the previous bishop of Capua also died. Uh, and seeking a way to, you know, really entrench their family into the political organization of the city, the armed men of Lando and Pando made it abundantly clear in the bishop election that the correct candidate for bishop was Landolf, their youngest brother who had been in the
3: guards. All right, at least this Lando gets... he doesn't get screwed like um, the Lando in the uh, Star Wars movies. (laughs) Well, his... (laughs) Well, <laughs> okay, we'll hold off on that. <laughs> not so fast.
2: So shortly thereafter, um, with the chaos of Capua getting burned to the ground and everything, uh, this Bishop Landolf and his uh, you know, slightly older brother, Londonolf, decided to go off and set up for themselves. And they uh, took some retainers, took off a chunk of the family land, and tried to set up as their own own dukes um and for their trouble they unfortunately seem to have picked land that bordered on the uh Gideshi territory in Spolento, who uh, are you know of course my favorite people from this period so the Gadeshi just swapped, swooped in and took all the land away from them <laughs> and said that they were helping out uh, lando <laughs> uh so the shock apparently killed london Ulf. so that's one brother out of the way um but uh Bishop Landolf went back to the city, where he resumed his role in the administration. Uh, shortly after that, Lando died of natural causes, and begged his brothers to make sure that his sons inherited. Thereupon Pando his brother and Bishop Landolf, his youngest brother, drove the sons out of the city.
3: <laughs>
2: of course. <laughs> At around the same time, they violated an oath of fealty that they had taken to the Duke of Salerno, who proceeded to shelter the disinherited sons of Lando uh, and managed to organize a coalition of the entirety of the rest of the Lombard dukedoms who came at Capua to you know take it back and uh, restore the sons of Lando onto the throne um, in the process, Pando was killed. <laughs> So that leaves Bishop uh Bishop Landolf as the only brother still alive. Last man last standing man standing. Um and Capua probably would have been destroyed, but around that same time a huge Saracen army showed up on a raid and everyone got distracted and had to go back to Benevento to drive them off. So Bishop Landolf is the last man standing. He apparently made some effort to put Pando's sons in as Duke. But, for whatever reason, uh, Pando's sons got together some retainers and fled the city, ensconced themselves in some castles on the family land, and then started raiding the countryside.
3: Oh, (laughs) jeez.
2: So this leaves Landolph in control of the city, as both the bishop and the last remaining brother who can inherit the title of Duke. So he really was just holding the- he was the last guy holding the bag. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he'd also made quite a number of enemies, and his solution to this was rather ingenious. He sent out diplomatic feelers and made it clear to everyone that he was on their side, and if they would just come to the city, he would support them and not the other guys. And so everyone came to the city, at which point they all set about fighting. And so you have the uh, the Lombard dukes, whose oaths of fealty he had shirked, the sons of Pando, the sons of Lando... Um, and they all came to the city, and they all started fighting each other, and then they started fighting amongst themselves. So the sons of Pando started fighting the other sons of Pando. The sons of Lando started fighting the other sons of Lando. <laughs> uh, all the different uh, Lombard dukes were fighting each other. Um, sort of inevitably, <laughs> this wasn't a great situation, but... No, I
3: can't imagine.
2: <laughs> but it leaves Bishop Landolf as, like, the guy who's sort of running the city still, as everyone... Everyone, like, divided up the city like some sort of sitcom. Like, the, the they paint the, the line down the center of the apartment and say, you stay on your side. <laughs> Except that they were street gangs fighting each other to maintain these territories. Um, so inevitably someone called Dad. Uh, you know, someone appealed <laughs> to someone outside the situation to come and fix things. So a couple of the brothers of uh, Pando, I think, Went to Louis II, uh, of who was the King of Italy at this time, and Louis happily came in to try and resolve the situation. Louis had this overarching policy that he wanted to fix the South because he was kind of getting frozen out of uh, Northern Europe at this time. So his goal was sort of to take over the South, drive over the drive out the Saracens, and consolidate his kingdom and use that to try and move back north. So. This was a great opportunity for him. So he comes in with a huge army, and the bishop goes out to meet the army and says, Yo, I don't know what these guys are doing. It has nothing to do with me. (laughs) Leaving, of course, the entire city, which is all divided against itself and divided up by these street gangs. The city is now completely leaderless and uh, defenseless as it faces a siege. Oh, man. Um, So the, the city pretty quickly surrendered uh, and was put under the rule of Lambert of Spilento, one of the Gadeshis. It, it should be pointed out that it was Lambert of Spilento and not any of the disinherited sons or any of the Lombard dukes who were all trying to squabble over Capua at the beginning of this situation. Uh, Louis then used Capua as a launch pad for his further attempts to attack the Saracens. Uh, but he ended up coming to not a great end. Um, this is it a lot more in my podcast but basically when it became clear that he wasn't just going to drive out the saracens but also try and take over there was a conspiracy against him and they ended up uh attacking him while he was asleep and throwing him in prison but they ended up letting him go so he was sort of driven out of southern italy by the the lombards and he he tried to come back with a big army and get his revenge but he ended up dying shortly thereafter but in this while all that is going on um and he needed lambert to come with him to do all his wars and stuff so the person that he left in charge to run the city in his absence was his new friend landolf the bishop he just
3: always seems to wind up on
1: time
2: yes uh so landolf now had a newfound imperial legitimacy and he was the duke of capua and the bishop of capua and he had this vote of confidence from the holy roman emperor so what's he do he starts picking off his old enemies the the duke of Salerno was arrested and imprisoned along with some of the sons of lando the sons of pando fled uh and went to the wife and daughter of louis notably the daughter uh ermengarde was uh the one they went to who had seems to have had the most political acumen and to have really been Louis' uh, person on the spot, so uh, so to speak. Um, And she ended up giving them shelter. But once Louis died, um, this whole situation was kind of reversed because the imperial legitimacy of Bishop Landolf is gone, and it's clearly going to be some time before the Kingdom of Italy can interfere in the south again. So all of a sudden, Landolf is on his own, (laughs) facing all these enemies... Uh, who are now out of prison and getting their, getting their retainers together and probably kind of annoyed. And so he goes to them and says, this was all a huge misunderstanding. <laughs> we should be friends. <laughs> and, um, patches things up and they support him and he resumes his role as duke and bishop <laughs>
3: and, uh, continues to rule Capua until his death a few years later in 879 and so he really exemplifies another way that bishops became political he had his feet in both of those camps and it was just a natural way for him to meld them together yes um
2: one of the the interesting uh, little circumstances that were was part of his rule that i think says a lot about where both secular and uh religious authority was at the time uh, was his relationship with the monks in capua um capilla is like really close to um monte cassino which is where the benedictine order was founded um and so th- there was a lot of monasticism going on and at, at this point in the middle ages it really wasn't clear who the monasteries reported to um they weren't necessarily reporting to the bishops they weren't some some bishops thought they should be reporting to them. Some secular leaders thought they should be reporting to them because the secular leaders often provided the land and the money to get the monastery started. Uh, and, and everything was was pretty up in the air. Um, and the a lot of the monks thought that they should be reporting to whatever order founded their monastery. So if I had been a Benedictine and I went off and started a new monastery, I'd report back to the old... Monastery. So there, there were like three different ways that they that people thought this should be happening. Um, Landenolf was a bishop and the duke, and so he thought, well, you know, by two out of three of these versions of things, I should be the one in control, and I should be the one getting the uh, the money that these places produce. And so he um, used his secular authority to impose his secular and religious authority over the monasteries and get their
3: taxes, which, yeah, it's, a, it's a double whammy. You want to, as a bishop control these communities and you want their massive amount of wealth too. Oh yeah, definitely. Particularly for someone who was dealing with as many enemies as, as uh,
2: Landolf was, um, you need your filthy lucre. So, <laughs> uh, so he, he made himself no friends in history uh and our our main source for his life is uh Erchenbard of Cremona who's a a monk who wrote a chronicle of the uh the history of the the Lombard kingdoms in southern Italy and of course he has nothing nice to say about Landenolf <laughs> uh he accuses him of witchcraft um and uh he he says that he did all this he he accuses him of having his men like cudgel the monks to death and um, he says that he had this done because he just was so jealous that they were going to heaven and he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty
3: much uh, uh, Landolf of uh, of Capua <laughs> and what we know about him. And I think that whole situation, it, it exposes a lot of the fault lines in medieval Europe that these monastic orders like the Benedictines and the, um, the Dominicans, who I don't they may have been around at that time. Yeah, I'm not sure when they were founded. The Benedictines were a big one, and there was a few other ones. You know, a place like Monte Cassino, it was politically powerful. It was religiously powerful. It was extremely wealthy, and it didn't really answer to anyone. Yeah,
2: yes. So the flip side of that is if you don't answer to anyone, you also have no protection from anyone. Mm-hmm. So if you're a, a weaker monastery and you don't have the... Uh, the wherewithal to defend yourself, you ended up pretty much in the hands of whoever around you was strongest. Um, so a lot of the, uh, the secular authorities would were taking lands from monasteries at this time. I don't have the quote in front of me, but Chris Wickham, was one of the, the big authorities on uh, early medieval Italy, uh, he has uh, access to a lot of records that I don't have access to, and says that in general, during periods of... Um, political chaos, the the churches lost lands, and the monasteries lost lands, and their uh, economic base contracted, and then during peaceful periods, they expanded, uh, and that's part of this whole process, and I, I know in my show, I've talked about, briefly, um, how, uh, yeah, Lothair, uh, when the, the Gadeshi first moved to Italy, Lothair ended up putting one of them in charge of a monastery, like, as a fief, <laughs> like... It's, that works Yeah, apparently it's <laughs> yeah. just you know in, in this period everything was so legally even unsettled that that was what you could do that just say that that monastery that's yours
3: now and it really i mean that's an it's like giving someone an at app
2: yes I, all, all of these fiefs were basically payments in lieu of cash um you know i want you to be in my army so here's here's a fief Uh, be it a monastery or a village or whatever and it produces this amount of income and that's your salary essentially
3: yeah that was the thing with the medieval times in that uh, time period 800s, 900s even up until pretty close to the renaissance there was no way the cash just wasn't a very easy thing to get a hold of yeah
2: definitely and you know this is getting into all economic history that I, I don't think either of us have the research at hand to talk no, about. No. But, you know, a, a lot of the turnaround in the, the high Middle Ages and the late Middle Ages had a lot to do with the discovery of, like, silver mines in Germany and uh, Scandinavia. And then later on, um, the, the discovery of the New World and the extraction of all the gold from there uh, sort of uh, created massive inflation, but also kick-started the European economy to a certain extent.
3: Yeah, and then innovations and in banking and moving money around. You know, that started to get people away from the need to specifically... Oh, the only way to be prosperous was to just own land.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's honestly... I mean, that issue goes back to the Roman Empire. Part of the reason their economy fell apart was you're dealing with these long-distance trade networks, but you're still dealing with
3: hauling tons and tons of gold coins around. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And not really understanding how money worked. Yeah. That it, um, you know, oh, let's just take this gold coin that used to be 100% gold and let's just put a little drop of gold and that'll be the same <laughs> thing. <laughs> and we'll have 500 of them instead of one. <laughs> yeah. And they just... um you know, they didn't even have the mechanisms to really study that or see how it would play out. Right. It took so such a long time and people could easily hoard coins. And, you know, just to tie it back to what we're saying, that at this point, land was the most important thing you could have. Yeah. And so as we were talking, this idea of and I think this actually came up in a couple of uh, Facebook group conversations, what is a theocracy? And are these lands that are ruled by bishops, and especially as we move on later on into history, a thing like the Papal States, or a a duchy that's ruled by a Duke Prince, can you call that a classic theocracy?
2: I mean, that's such a tough question because you're talking about definitions of, vaguely nonspecific government systems, but um, the term theocracy means, you know, rule by God or by God's word. Um, And I don't think that's a really appropriate way to discuss the the prince bishops because they were they were, you know, bishops but they weren't necessarily ruling as bishops. It's like they changed hats. Yeah. Um, So I I think... um, the The more appropriate term is probably Caesaropapism, which is something that's a fairly technical, legalistic term. That
3: yeah, you don't hear that one. That doesn't come up every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so,
2: like the that's sort of the the secular authority is ultimate religious authority as well. Um, sort of, you know, they they worked. I mean, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Or? Yeah,
3: it's a marriage of the state and the religion. The classic example would be either the popes inside of the papal states, or the way things worked in the Byzantine Empire, where the emperor was the ultimate secular authority, and there was the patriarch of the empire who was the ultimate religious authority, but he really worked hand-in-hand hand with the emperor, and it was almost that he was a member of the emperor's cabinet. They In uh, the East, the Patriarch of Constantinople would be later get the title Ecumenical Patriarch. And in religious terms, that's caused a lot of conform, uh, conflict with the popes. But there was, in Constantinople, there was almost every office that directly answered to the emperor was called the ecumenical garbage man, the ecumenical uh, military leader. They all had that title ecumenical, and that ecumenical, later on after the fall of the uh, Byzantine Empire, took a different definition to it that it probably didn't have while they were still emperors in Constantinople.
2: So, I mean... This, this this distinction then is sort of like if I want to know who's going to pick up my garbage in a theocracy, I'd have to open the Bible and say, see if there were any uh, quotes that had anything to do with people picking up garbage. in a Caesaropapism. Yeah. C- someone could go, well, God doesn't like things to be dirty, so we're going to establish this legal code that deals with garbage pickups.
3: And like the legal code, they really in um. In the Byzantine Empire, you know, it was a Roman law code. And through most of Europe, it was a Roman law code. They weren't using a biblical law code. Like you said, they weren't following the, um, you know, a version of like the Jewish uh, Talmudic right. Mishnah, where everything is this is what it says in the Bible, and this is how we can therefore interpret it and then apply it to our day to day lives.
2: And the. That has a lot of implications because, um, I mean, the thing to remember about the Middle Ages is that pretty much everything is based on Roman, the Roman society that went before, and mm-hmm. the Roman society that immediately preceded the collapse of the Western half of the empire was a was a successor to the Constantinian version of Romanness as opposed to the the Octavian version uh, yeah. that yeah. we might think of. That so it was definitely solidly into a Caesaropapism type of legal structure and not a
3: roman legal structure in the more classical sense i suppose and as they and as um, things move on throughout the um, middle ages there's a huge conflict of who's going to appoint bishops right and i I think um we may want to get into that a little bit
2: later but uh i mean that that turns into the Investiture Controversy, that becomes that uh, basically rips apart uh, European political society even before
3: you get to the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, that's a huge, a huge bone of contention. Why don't we, um, you know, we've laid that out that we're really we're not in a theocracy as such. Yeah. But we're we've got something else going on here. Let's go through a couple more examples of bishops who took on a political and military authority. Sure, that sounds great. Um, you've got a couple examples, right? One really interesting one that we alluded to earlier was the Bishops of Durham in Northern England. Durham's the closest major city, well, back then major city, to the Scottish border. And the Scottish border was a pretty unsettled place for quite a long time.
2: Yeah. I think I've talked yeah. about this uh, a couple times in my podcast, that there were uh, these people called reavers, who were just um, raiders, who would go back and forth across the border, and it wasn't necessarily clear who was on whose side. And a lot of times, they had more in common with each other than with the people back in London or Edinburgh or whatever. And um, the the lords in this era area got you know fabulously wealthy by taking their cut of the loot, and the the poor people were ridiculously
3: destitute because every every couple weeks the reavers would come over the horizon. Yeah, they were just constantly getting squeezed by the Lord who wanted more, and then the Reavers wanting to take more. Yeah, Yeah, that leads into all sorts of different, that's probably, that's a different talk for a different day, but that whole situation, but it really boiled down to that for a long stretch of time, the Bishop of Durham was the political leader of Durham and was his one of his core responsibilities was the defense of the English border with Scotland. Uh, a really a huge, or uh, one of the more important examples of that is a bishop named Antony of Beck. Mm-hmm. And he was in the early 300s. Sorry, uh, early 1300s. Oh, yeah. So not terribly too long after the Norman Conquest. That's when a lot of these things really got right. going. An Anglo-Saxon bishop, was pretty much what you would expect of a bishop. They were really, they um, were more concerned with religious authority. That was their sphere. And they looked to the king. They weren't a um, political entity in and of themselves. But after the Normans kind of shook up all of that, Antony of Beck was first and foremost a knight. He was trained as a knight. And through that knightly training, he was Received diplomatic training, just all the things you would think of as a norman knightly type guy, and he fought in several key battles in the north. This is all when this uh the whole uh William Wallace Braveheart thing was going on, and uh I don't believe he had a role in the movie at all, but um I did believe it or not the movie wasn't uh exactly historically accurate, but he <laughs> In the Battle of Falkirk, where the Scottish ultimately lost, he basically led the army, or a major portion of it, and he was the impetus of them winning at the battle. Oh, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> that did not make him a lot of friends. Like um, One of his uh, enemies said, it's not your office to instruct us in the art of war, to thy is mass. So they were even saying, "Like, what are you doing here, this is our business you know you should be back you know just doing priest stuff but then other people were really saying that um you know he had it he was like a all around guy he was you know he could fight he could be a bishop he could do whatever you want he ultimately in the end of the line he kind of fell out with the king of england but was able to use his bishop office to and run around the king, he made friends with the pope. I believe it was one of the Clements, and Clement basically bailed him out and even made him the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem. That's crazy. with the Crusades still being a running thing. I don't think he, I don't think he ever went to Jerusalem, but he had like that title he could, uh, you know, toss around, and that saved him. Other uh, bishops of durham was one um lewis of beaumont he was a, they think he was illiterate like that's how yeah. you know and a bishop would never be illiterate in most other places but it, it
2: wasn't uncommon during the early middle ages i mean the, the standard of education before the
3: carolingian renaissance was so unbelievably low <laughs> Yeah, that's true. This Louis of Beaumont was just another one who, he was there because of his military prowess. It wasn't that he was some engaging theologian. Right. Fascinating.
2: And then uh, you have this written down about uh, Vladikas of
3: Montenegro. Oh, they're another one. They're a little bit later, but um, just to throw them in to keep, you know, to um, just give another example, the, these were bishops in Montenegro in... Um, I guess you'd say like the Southern Balkans, and it was a tiny municipality, but basically given very similar to that Landolf situation where they were really the last people standing, they were able to pull off their little fiefdom there, and um, that was basically just the mountain that they lived on.
2: Right, that's what the name Montenegro means, it's the Black Mountain.
3: Yeah, and that it wasn't. I the country now is a little bit more than the mountain, but theirs wasn't much more than the mountain. Yeah, and they were able to because they were in the mountains. They were a clan. These um, bishops of Montenegro were basically able to keep themselves almost completely independent from the Ottomans during the peak of the Ottoman time. That's fascinating. You know we look at northern England, it's southern Europe all you know and everything in between all these different bishops found power was either thrust on them or it was pretty easy for them to take power when they needed to
2: right so um that sort of begs the question of what happened why why don't we have all these guys running around anymore um and just fairly briefly, i'm gonna discuss uh the domestication of the prince bishops if you will
3: yeah that sounds like a great um you know they would domestication that's a great term for it yeah
2: they, they were they were house trained basically
3: <laughs> um
2: the, the big event as with so much in uh the middle ages is the the carolingian empire and there were a couple things that went on there um the the urban decline went into a sort of overdrive in in northern europe um and that had a lot to do with what happened to the prince bishops because they were sort of an urban phenomenon to a certain extent um they got their claim to semi-legitimacy because they were part of the roman urban municipal administration and when the when the urban municipality went away the, they're uh, no longer sitting on top of a bureaucratic governmental administration anymore um at the same time with the rise of the empire of Charlemagne, church rights and properties were being protected by a secular authority um, who was sponsoring education so that uh, the churchmen were a little bit more in line with what church doctrine actually said. Uh, and then the church was also given power within the secular power structure as a bureaucratic staff and as the propaganda arm of the empire. Uh, all of this sort of took away a lot of the incentives and uh, opportunities to become a prince-bishop but that didn't mean they all sort of immediately went away another aspect of this was um the the rise of a much more structured feudalism uh before charlemagne feudalism existed but it was kind of uh semi-informal let's say um with charlemagne charlemagne loved issuing laws uh and we have a lot of them and He took the sort of uh, here's some land, I want you to be in my army kind of situation that had existed before and set it on a really firm, structured basis. This allowed the empire to start doing things such as um, landowners could contribute to the military via proxies. So if you're too old to serve in the army, you can send your son or whatever. Um, And if you're a bishop and you don't fight because you're a man of God you can have all the knights in your territory get together, you can appoint a military leader and then send them to join the army, or, as would happen later, they would just report directly to the king or the emperor. So as a result, there was less of a need for bishops to act as, like, a a, a military personality. Another aspect, which, Steve, you've uh, discussed at least a little bit in, in your podcast, is the uh, manipulation of the free election of bishops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you've got a bunch of, when you've got a bunch of armed Franks hanging around, that sort of goes into a a whole different dimension. The, The concept of a free election in an era where law and order is controlled by the guys with the swords, um, kind of laughable.
3: Yeah. Just that whole thing. It's, if a bishop doesn't have to have military authority, and as civil authorities start to become strengthened their place in the at the political table kind of shrinks or at least they're direct you know they're always gonna have sway with their flock but it's gonna be less less and less that they're gonna have a place like directly governing definitely
2: um I mean the Middle Ages was very much like like we've talked about earlier already is um who controls the land and who controls the do- the dudes with the swords? Mm-hmm. Um, that that is the meat and potatoes of power in the Middle Ages, and to a certain extent today. <laughs> yeah,
3: and really anything as uh, you know, places like Germany, they were separated a lot longer into these various municipalities and principalities, and that kept the prince bishop alive longer there than in a place like france
2: well that's actually it's interesting that you bring up uh the the holy roman empire because the situation there was really set by the atonian dynasty of Otto the first second and third um and he he had some really specific things that he wanted he'd come into possession of the eastern part of the frankish empire um and he needed to find a way to have the land managed and defended, which was now being done by this feudal administration, but the problem is that once you give someone land, uh, and now that it, it was starting to become inheritable, um, what incentive do they have to actually listen to you, because they've got their own military, and uh, it, it becomes really possible for uh, land and power to slip out of the hands of the central government in this situation. And that really gets to the heart of where your
3: podcast is going.
2: Yes, very much. Uh, and that's, uh, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> the, the end goal of this Gadeshi storyline is going to be the rise of the Ottonian dynasty and the investiture controversy. Where all that comes from is basically Otto needed a way to see that land was controlled in his empire uh, without putting it in the hands of people who would just take it away from him so the thing he hit on was giving it to bishops because bishops don't have kids and so theoretically there no one's going to inherit the land and he could control uh bishop bishopal, what's the word for episcopal elections um, yeah
3: episcopal
2: he could control episcopal elections uh, theoretically so you know this this was a, seemed like a perfect way for him to control uh, how land would be governed within the Holy Roman Empire, or what was becoming the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and he, he distributed the lands to the bishops in such a way as to break up some of the large duchies, uh, what we've called the stem duchies in the Holy Roman Empire, which these big traditional land holdings. Um, which, that worked really great while he was alive, but after he died, the church started trying to firm up its control of the church hierarchy, and take it out of the hands, take uh, the Episcopal appointments out of the hands of the Holy Roman Emperor, and this gradually created a situation of conflict between the Holy Roman Empire's secular authorities, who needed a way to control their land, and the church, which wanted to control its uh, office holders, if you will.
3: It's really interesting because all of this, all of these things that you're saying, really seem to lead up into where your podcast is going. Can you tell us a little bit more about your show?
2: Oh yeah, sure. Um, so my seemingly poorly named show is uh, Wittenberg to Westphalia: The Wars of the Reformation, and it's somewhat poorly named because at this point I'm, you know, a year and a half or so into the show, and I have gotten nowhere near the wars of the Reformation. <laughs> Um, right now I'm talking about uh, a family called the Gadeshi in, in southern Italy. But where, where I'm going is that I needed to discuss how the Middle Ages led into the early modern period, which is the point of the show, is the, the early modern period. And the political structures and religious structures of the Middle Ages were extremely important in how the Protestant Reformation unfolded, uh, and particularly in the Holy Roman Empire. And so this, this stuff that I've just been talking about with the Atonian dynasty and the investiture controversy, uh, that's going to be a big part of what determines the, the course of the Protestant Reformation. And so I'm, in my show, I'm building up to the Atonian dynasty and then uh, uh, the investiture controversy, and then I'm going to talk a bit about um, other aspects of religious conflict in the Middle Ages. Uh, and the society. And then I'm going to
3: finally get to the early modern period <laughs> and the Italian I, Renaissance and all that stuff. I mean, it seems to me that um, you could probably start at the Reformation and go forward. But I mean, it must seem to you, too, that you really can't do justice to the topic without all these things go back to basically the fall of the Roman Empire.
2: Yeah, very much so. Um, that was one of the main things that I really wanted to cover with my show is just not take anything really for granted um and you could argue that i've gone down a few too many rabbit holes but um i think this stuff is all really important and poorly understood um in how it relates to the early modern period uh and the the society that we live in now and so that's that's why i've wanted to take my time and deal with all this stuff um but uh that being said i mean uh All this talk about the investiture controversy and uh, the Protestant Reformation, um, I mean, that relates pretty heavily to your show as well. Uh, You're you're still... Eventually. Eventually, (laughs) yeah. You're still pretty far back. Uh, You're doing the uh, East Meets West episode still, right?
3: Yes. There's a couple more of those coming, and um, the plan is to look at a little bit more about how Christianity spread to the East and then circle back around and look into that period just after the fall of the Roman Empire and really what's going on. I mean, that whole thing, the whole, everything that went on in Northern Italy is so fascinating, it's so political, it's religion, it's violence, it's like everything mashed into one.
2: You've started to get to the territory where you're touching on things that directly impacted uh, stuff I've mentioned in my show. I've I just listened to the show where you were talking about the monophysite heresy, and <laughs> in the uh, episode I did on the Lombards in northern Italy, um, one of the reasons that they probably didn't convert directly to Catholicism or to anything else, really, was that there were monophysite bishops hanging around in northern Italy, and um, and then the they were there were a lot of Aryans within their own ranks. And so all the stuff that you've been discussing about um, the various heresies is directly relevant to my listeners, I think.
3: Yeah, I think so, too. I think that they, um, you know, that whole thing really gels together well. I really love, too, like all those families in northern Italy that, um, you know, that they come, their names are huge in the Renaissance in the fifteen, sixteen hundreds. 1600s. They trace back to the 800s.
2: Oh, yeah. The the Gideshi, uh I mean, they're still hanging around in Italy uh, today. <laughs> Obviously not a
3: powerful land magnates who are
2: killing everyone but
3: there's the other big family in um oh what's their names the um the Welfs oh well uh the Welfs and the Ghibellines. I mean uh that's that actually
2: relates directly to the investiture controversy because those are actually Germanic names originally the uh, well yeah so the the Germanic names are the Welfs and the Wibbelines, yeah and um the and it was uh Italicized to Gelfs and Ghibellines in the Renaissance. The the Welfs were a a, a, um, a branch of a Burgundian family that ended up migrating into the Holy Roman Empire and then ended up siding with uh, the Pope in the Investiture Controversy. And the the Wibblins were it's the name of a castle for that the uh, the Holy Rom the At- Atonian loyalists.
3: Uh, gathered around, or no the the hohenstaufen loyalists gathered around. Yeah, and that um, <clears throat> you know the popes were all directly in involved in that, and um, that was a big part of the of Dante's life. Like basically everybody, I don't remember. I think he was a Ghibelline, but then there was two factions of Ghibellines or two factions of what? There were like, two.
2: So the, he was a Ghibelline, and he got the Ghibellines got driven out of power in florence and then there were the white the white guelphs and the black guelphs and they were fighting over uh the the power in the florentine republic and he was a so he didn't care but
3: he ended up siding with the wrong faction and got booted out (laughs) and basically everybody who was in the inferno was all of his political enemies yes yes (laughs) like anybody that he didn't like wound up in the inferno right
2: but of course, by that time, the the basic like issues that had caused the Gelf versus Ghibelline uh, party conflict in Italy had had long since stopped being about anything, and it was just party. Yeah,
3: you know, I don't like my neighbor, and my neighbor is a Gelf, so I'm a Ghibelline. <laughs> yeah, that's a, and that's the other, that it's it really did it turn by about that point. It was it was meaningless to what it would to what it had originally meant.
2: Yeah. Is why, you know, historians have continued using the italicized versions of these Germanic names, and it it really doesn't matter.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify.
1: They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> they didn't care. They didn't even, most of them probably didn't even know what it was about. <laughs>
3: Well this is this has been an awesome conversation I think it's yeah. um you know I think we've covered a lot of ground and there's still a ton more to cover but I think this laid a good basis for what we've been you know to, for what we've been talking about and for future conversations about how how Italy developed, how Germany developed, France and really how Western Europe turned into a, from medieval times into modernity.
2: Definitely. I don't think uh there's any way we could uh have our shows keep going and not end up doing
3: another one of these. No, definitely. If people want to learn more about your show, how can they get a hold of you? So many ways. Um, so the website
2: is probably the first best place. Uh, that's Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com. Uh, they also have a Facebook page, which is just Wittenberg to Westphalia. Uh, you can email me at Wittenberg to Westphalia at com. Um, but the the Facebook page and the website are probably the best. Oh, and I'm on Twitter, um, at w2w podcast.
3: <laughs> so that's <laughs> plenty of ways. Yeah. And how about how about you your show? The best, um, probably the best way to get in touch and to find out more is at the website a2zhistorypage.com. We're also on Facebook and a2z history twitter all the usual places on itunes google play music podcasts and if you want to get in touch with me directly the email is a great way it's steve at a 2 zhistorypagecom
2: i'm on i'm on google play music as well i should uh, note that i signed up
3: and thanks for joining us
1: even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things